Book One, Chapter Four of The Coming of Bill by P. G. Woodhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Troubled Waters. It is not easy in this world to take any definite step without annoying somebody, and Kirk, in embarking on his wooing of Ruth Bannister, failed signally to do so. Laura Delane Porter beamed graciously upon him, like a pleased providence, but the rest of his circle of acquaintances were ill at ease. The statement does not include Hank Jardine, for Hank was out of New York, but the others, Shanklin the actor, Wren the newspaper man, Bryce, Johnson, Willis, Appleton, and the rest sensed impending change in the air and were uneasy, like cattle before a thunderstorm. The fact that the visits of Mrs. Porter and Ruth to inquire after George, now of daily occurrence, took place in the afternoon, while they, Kirk's dependents, seldom or never appeared in the studio till drawn there by descent of the evening meal, it being understood that during the daytime Kirk liked to work undisturbed, kept them ignorant of the new development. All they knew was that during the last two weeks a subtle change had taken place in Kirk. He was less genial, more prone to irritability than of old. He had developed fits of absent-mindedness, and was frequently to be found staring pensively at nothing. To slap him on the back at such moments, as Wren ventured to do on one occasion, Wren belonging to the jovial school of thought which holds that nature gave us hands in order to slap backs, was to bring forth a new and unexpected Kirk, a Kirk who scowled and snarled and was hardly to be appeased with apology. Stranger still, this new Kirk could be summoned into existence by precisely the type of story at which, but a few weeks back, he would have been the first to laugh. Percy Shanklin, whose conversation consisted of equal parts of autobiography and of stories of the type alluded to, was the one to discover this. His latest, which he had counted on to set the table in a roar, produced from Kirk criticism so adverse and so crisply delivered, that he refrained from telling his latest but one, and spent the rest of the evening wondering, like his fellow visitors, what had happened to Kirk and whether he was sickening for something. Not one of them had the faintest suspicion that these symptoms indicated that Kirk, for the first time in his easy-going life, was in love. They had never contemplated such a prospect. It was not till his conscientious and laborious courtship had been in progress for over two weeks and was nearing the stage when he felt that the possibility of revealing his state of mind to Ruth was not so remote as it had been, that a chance visit of Percy Shanklin to the studio during the afternoon solved the mystery. One calls it a chance visit because Percy had not been meaning to borrow twenty dollars from Kirk that day at all. The man slated for the loan was one Burroughs, a kindly member of the Lambs Club. But fate and a telegram from a manager removed Burroughs to Chicago, while Percy was actually circling preparatory to the swoop, and the only other man in New York who seemed to Percy good for the necessary sum at that precise moment was Kirk. He flew to Kirk and found him with Ruth. Kirk's utter absence of any enthusiasm at the sight of him the reluctance with which he made the introduction, 
the glumness with which he bore his share of the three-cornered conversation all these things convinced percy that this was no ordinary visitor many years of living by his wits had developed in percy highly sensitive powers of observation brief as his visit was he came away as certain that kirk was in love with this girl and the girl was in love with kirk as he had ever been of anything in his life as he walked slowly downtown he was thinking hard the subject occupying his mind was the problem of how this thing was to be stopped percy shanklin was a sleek suave unpleasant youth who had been imported by a theatrical manager two years before to play the part of an english dude in a new comedy the comedy had been what its enthusiastic backer had described in the newspaper advertisements as a rousing live-wire success that is to say it had staggered along for six weeks on broadway to extremely poor houses and after three weeks on the road had perished for all time leaving percy out of work since then no other english dude part having happened along he had rested living in the mysterious way in which out-of-work actors do live he had a number of acquaintances such as the amiable burrows who were good for occasional loans but kirk winfield was the king of them all there was something princely about the careless open-handedness of kirk's methods and percy's whole soul rose in revolt against the prospect of being deprived of this source of revenue as something possibly ruth's determined chin told him that he would be should kirk marry this girl he had placed ruth at once directly he had heard her name he remembered having seen her photograph in the society section of the sunday paper which he borrowed each week this was the daughter of old john bannister there was no doubt about that how she had found her way to kirk's studio he could not understand but there she certainly was and percy was willing to bet the twenty dollars which despite the excitement of the moment he had not forgotten to extract from kirk in a hurried conversation at the door that her presence there was not known and approved by her father the only reasonable explanation that kirk was painting her portrait he dismissed there had been no signs of any portrait and kirk's embarrassment had been so obvious that if there had been any such explanation he would certainly have given it no ruth had been there for other reasons than those of art unchaperoned too by jove thought percy virtuously ignorant of mrs laura delane porter who at the time of his call had been busily occupied in a back room instilling into george pennicut the gospel of the fit body for george now restored to health had ceased to be a mere student of elementary rules for the preservation of the body and had become an active though unwilling practiser of its precepts every morning mrs porter called and having shepherded him into the back room put him relentlessly through his exercises george's groans as he moved his stout limbs along the dotted lines indicated in the book's illustrated plates might have stirred a faint heart to pity but laura delane porter was made of sterner stuff if george so much as bent his knees while touching his toes he heard of it instantly in no uncertain voice thus in her decisive way did mrs porter spread light and sweetness with both hands achieving the bodily salvation of george while at the same time furthering the loves of ruth and kirk by leaving them alone together to make each other's better acquaintance in the romantic dimness of the studio percy proceeded downtown pondering 
His first impulse, I regret to say, was to send Ruth's father an anonymous letter. This plan he abandoned from the motives of fear rather than of self-respect. Anonymous letters are too frequently traced to their writers, and the prospect of facing Kirk in such an event did not appeal to him. As he could think of no other way of effecting his object, he had begun to taste the bitterness of futile effort, when fortune, always his friend, put him in a position to do what he wanted in the easiest possible way, with the minimum of unpleasantness. Bailey Bannister, that strong, keen Napoleon of finance, was not above a little relaxation of an evening when his father happened to be out of town. That giant mind, weary with the strain of business, needed refreshment. And so, at eleven-thirty that night, his father being in Albany, and not expected home till next day, Bailey might have been observed, beautifully arrayed and discreetly jovial, partaking of lobster at one of those Broadway palaces where this fish is in brisk demand. He was in company with his rabbit-faced friend Clarence Grayling, and two members of the chorus of a neighboring musical comedy. One of the two, with whom Clarence was conversing in a lively manner that showed his heart had not been irreparably broken as a result of his recent interview with Ruth, we may dismiss. Like Clarence, she is of no importance to the story. The other, who not finding Bailey's measured remarks very gripping, was allowing her gaze to wander idly around the room, as this claim to a place in the scheme of things that she had a wordless part in the comedy in which Percy Shanklin had appeared as the English dude and was on terms of friendship with him. Consequently, seeing him enter the room, as he did at that moment, she signaled him to approach. "'It's a little feller who was with me in The Man from Out West,' she explained to Bailey as Percy made his way toward them, at which Bailey's prim mouth closed with an air of disapproval. The feminine element of the stage he found congenial to his business-harassed brain, but with the little fellers who helped them to keep the national drama sizzling, he felt less in sympathy, and he resented extremely his companion's tactlessness in inciting this infernal mummer to intrude upon his privacy. He prepared to be cold and distant with Percy, and when Bailey, never a ray of sunshine, deliberately tried to be chilly, those with them at the time generally had the sensation that winter was once more in their midst. Percy, meanwhile, threaded his way among the tables, little knowing that fate had already solved the problem which had worried him the greater part of the day. He had come to the restaurant as a relief from his thoughts. If he could find some kind friend who would invite him to supper, well and good. If not, he was feeling so tired and depressed, he was ready to take the bull by the horns and pay for his meal himself. He had obeyed Miss Frida Reese's signal, because it was impossible to avoid doing so, but one glance at Bailey's face had convinced him that not there was his kind host. "'Why, Purse,' said Miss Reese, "'I ain't saw you in years. Where you been hiding yourself?' Percy gave a languid gesture indicative of the man of affairs whose time is not his own. "'Percy,' continued Miss Reese, "'shake hands with my friend Mr. Bannister.' I've been telling him about how you made such a hit as the pin in Pinafore. The name galvanized Percy like a bugle-blast. Mr. Bannister, he exclaimed. Any relation to Mr. John Bannister, the millionaire? Bailey favored him with a scrutiny through the gold-rimmed glasses which would have frozen his very spine. My father's name is, uh, John, and he is a millionaire. Percy met the scrutiny with a suave smile. 
"'By Jove,' he said, "'I know your sister quite well, Mr. Bannister. I meet her frequently at the studio of my friend Kirk Winfield, very frequently. She is there nearly every day. Well, I must be moving on. Got a date with